So you just got back from Texas? Yeah, Whitetail. So how was that? That was amazing. Titus and I went to check out this new ranch. It's the Covered S Ranch. Um, we're going to be doing some training there, teaching women. Um, I'm going to do self-defense classes. She's going to do precision, long-range shooting. Um, and so we just were scoping out like a cool destination place because in Wyoming, she has a range and here I have a range, but we don't both have what we need and Wyoming's cold as heck. And yes, it is. so it's a really neat. Yeah. So that way, like our followers and people can come and um, shoot with us and it'd be really cool. How do people find those? Is that all through your social media and your websites to sign up for an event? Yeah. And usually um, for me, I'll reach out socially. So first of all, I reach out to certain aspects like, and then I'll put it out publicly because I like my team to be able to be offered. Sometimes we, uh, I only do media events, but actually after I've started doing events like this, the last few years, Christy's like, man, I'm going to do this. This is awesome. So now we're doing them together, which is really cool. Oh, that's awesome. It's a good idea. Yeah, that's a great idea. So for the viewers and the listeners today, we have Jen O'Hara with Girls With Guns as well as many other ventures on our podcast and just talking about everything under the sun with hunting in Texas and Second Amendment rights and kids and camps. So where do we want to start off today, guys? Oh, I want to I want to hear your story. I know we kind of grew up kind of in the same area. I didn't know you were a little few grades older than I was, but, um, hey. I, I didn't know, I didn't know, well, you're more my brother's class, but, uh, and in what part of California, Northeastern California. So I'm from fall river. You grew up in big Valley, right? I did. Yeah. Yes. So, um, I saw the brand girls with guns and then we met a couple of years ago at a hunter ed conference, but I had no idea mm-hmm. that we were so close in terms of growing up in the same area and kind of living that same lifestyle. Well, we're actually kind of rivals when we were growing up. So. <laughs> I'd say the, the Bulldogs had the overhand. Not on football, though. They were super good for a small school. But yeah. 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 Where are we, we talking about? Were... I've never heard of either of these places. North, really? Eastern Northern Redding. California. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The true north. Like Redding area? North. Northeastern. North, north, yeah. Yeah. Like, you take 299 and you go for two hours up into the mountains. So I was born and raised in Aden, California. We have. 400 people in my hometown. Um, I was actually raised on a ranch. So it was like 1500 acres, um, alfalfa, cattle. My dad is the hardest working man that I've ever met. And we really just grew up in the outdoors. Um, this was, I mean, I'm 44. So it was like three channels. Um, and I, we started with the black and white TV. We didn't have cell phones till I graduated high school. And we would leave in the morning, um, usually horseback and wouldn't come back till dark. So it was the most amazing way to grow up. And um, everybody knows everybody. They still do. Yeah. Uh, I just came, I was just there this weekend. So uh, it's an amazing place to grow up, and it really is set the foundation for who I am. Um, I grew up with guns, but I wasn't necessarily hunting. Uh, my dad gave us kind of options. It was like I was the horseback rider, and I would go along for the hunts with him and my brother. And my brother actually told me um, many years, about 10 years ago, he said, I was like, you know, it's not fair that dad took you on all those hunts and I had to, you know, pick. And he's like, oh, I'll trade you now because I've been all over the world. (laughs) So um, it's just, it it really just um, kind of grew as I grew, I realized uh, my passion for firearms. And then 
Um, I wasn't sure if I could hunt because I'm such an animal lover. And the part of hunting and conservation that so many people don't understand is what really started it for me. And um, now I'm an avid conservationist, an avid hunter. Um, I'm a homesteader and I take everything from field to plate. And it's a little bit of my story now. And actually, um, I have a digital series that also outlines and is for changing directions in 2024. You guys are the first public forum that I'm announcing it on. Um, and I named the series after my daughter, Olivia, and it's called Living Outdoors with Jen O'Hara. Nice. And we're following around um, my lifestyle. So it's a lifestyle series of homesteading, um, homeschooling kids, raising um, them, um, teaching self-defense to men and women, as well as um, just being in the outdoors and hunting and all the things that I do um, on a daily basis. Where would people be able to find this once it launches? It'd be on Carbon TV. Okay. Very oh. nice. Very inspiring. Yes. Very appropriate for today's age, for sure. Well, you know, it is... Um, I'm kind of going backwards and maybe it's because I'm an older mom uh, at, I started at 40 and the world, and I now I know I sound like my dad, but <laughs> the world is just looks so different. And it's honestly a little bit terrifying as a parent. And I, when I first had Olivia, I was like, I'm, you know, we'll just get him in the outdoors. We'll get him everything. Um, it's okay. You know, I'll still send him to school. And then slowly she became school age. We did it for about three months in pre-K and I said, nope, I don't think so. Um, she wasn't really feeling it. And um, so she's back home. I homeschool her 30 minutes a day. Um, I have a nanny who helps me on the days I work. And it's honestly perfect because the girls are raised in the outdoors. They go on hunts with me. Um, they go outdoors. They do the chores. They're outside and you know, uh, it's everybody to each their own, but my kids aren't um, being raised by someone else. They're here with me at home and I love it. And it's what I want. Nice. That's a lot of work. It's a ton of work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, no, I, well, and, you know, I mean, I owned a couple other businesses, so that's, you know, part yeah. of the main work. Yeah. I was going to go through that. So you do have a couple of business ventures. What was the first one you started and how did you kind of get into that? path was that always your career path like the outdoor industry or did you start mm -mm. somewhere else and then morphed your way into it so in 2009 i was actually um in the top three realtors in um Tehama county which is the county that i live in here in northern california and um avid hunter i mean i loved hunting did a ton of waterfowl hunting um and because, you know, the opportunities, I'm just going to say for big game aren't as much, you know, I can get a tag every four years. So and it's also a big lifestyle for my family. And my best friend, uh, Narissa Harmon, she came to me and said, Hey, I've got this idea. I would love to start this business venture. Can you? Um, do you want to help me? Do you want to get involved? And so um, she is our co-founder. And we went through the motions of um, starting this business in her garage and my garage. And we were shipping from mine at one point, we were building everything in hers. And it happened really fast. There was nothing else out there at the time. Um, now there's tons of companies that um, are putting stuff out there. There's men's brands that are putting stuff out there. 
but we were kind of like the OGs. And, um, you know, 2009 and by 2013, we were creating new hunting products with adjustable waistbands, um, snap-ins for your inseams because I'm five foot tall and she's five seven. And so we started bringing in products that were really great for women. And in that same season in 2013, we started filming overseas um, and hunting. Our producer had found us. Uh, he was from South Africa. And so I've actually traveled to South Africa 11 or actually Africa period 11 times and hunted over there. Wow. And when you guys were yeah, starting, and so that was born. When you guys were starting to make all these these new garments and whatnot for hunting, are, are you guys reaching out overseas and getting it produced? Or are you guys were you guys mm-hmm. sewing that in house? How was that process? So at first we were doing like off the rack blanks. Um, okay. We have pictures of us in the garage, and I was pressing hats, and she was embroidering t-shirts. Okay. And um, our friends, we had like an assembly line and they would tag them for us. And then we would drive them over to Reno. And we had like these old boxes that said um, Nana's blankets. <laughs> and we have a picture. We pulled it out of a trailer to the hand deliver to the Reno Shields. And um, my brother was there and he's like, wait, are you kidding me? He's like, what is Nana's blankets? I'm like, it was the box we had. Like, uh, we're broke, you know? <laughs> we're like entrepreneurs just got started. So we actually have that picture framed. And um, that he's like, I got to get a picture of this. And our first check, I was like, can you guys give us our first check like now? Yeah. You know, because we had to go and make more product. And very quickly, we realized that we were going to have to figure this out. And we found a private investor. Um, they invested $50,000. And we just started snowballing and just going through. Um, eventually, we were in all the shields, um, 55 sportsmen's warehouses. Uh, it just started building. And with the clothing industry, it's always kind of like this up and down roller coaster. But um, over the last 16 years, we've really just, and or 15 now, we've really enjoyed the ride. Yeah. How do you differentiate your guys's product from like you were talking about, you know, those other major brands that are now coming out with women's lines where you guys were kind of the, the majority share of the market at the time? How do you guys innovate for the future? Uh, a lot of new products and what we've done is become like your one-stop shop. So okay. basically when you go onto girls with guns, we have licensing contracts with companies like Allen outdoors who does um we have from eye and ear protection for just shooting. We have really cool handgun cases made in America. We have um, range bags. We have concealed carry Uh, backpacks, we have concealed carry purses. Um, Then we really started getting into like, we were doing the casual, then we went into hunting. Then the next step, um, as we progressed was range wear. And our actual, um, our carbine pants, um, one in 2020, we didn't get to go to the awards show because for obvious reasons, Um, the NRA women's um, uh, award of the year, and we won the top um, product, which was our carbine pants. And they're amazing. Um, to this day, they're our top seller. And they're just a plain range pant um, that we build. And a lot of people hunt in them. Uh, they're amazing. And then um, we progressed about five years ago into concealed carry women's products. And a lot of that coincided. I decided I'm going to start teaching on the side, just kind of like learning. So I 
um, came under uh, an amazing instructor here in Northern California, who's a friend of mine, Ted Lighty, and he owns a company called Northern Firearms Instruction. And the, the thing is, is that when we do hunting, we were there, we were hunting, we were trying out our gear. And yes, I can seal carry, you know, and have for 15 years. But you just because you have a concealed carry permit doesn't make you the expert in the room. So I wanted to become the expert in an authority on it. And so I started working with Ted and learning. And then COVID hit in 2020. And he's like, hey, we really need more people like, you know, you who love this and are passionate about it. And so I started instructing locally because we weren't traveling like we used to. And I just had my daughter and I'd committed myself not to travel as much. So, you know, I gave myself a, another business venture. And so I teach locally. It has taught me so much. And it's something I'm very passionate about um, because I think that in the state of the state that we live in, that you have to be able to protect yourself, especially if you're a woman. What are some of the hurdles? I mean, the women in general is, is, their hunting and shooting participation is is going up, but we know with the R3 movement, there's definitely some hurdles. Does it help that you are a female instructor and getting all these new women out into the field? And how is that comfort level with all these new shooters, seeing someone like yourself as their instructor opposed to a 65-year-old white male, right? You know, People ask me a lot. They'll come to me, women, and uh, text me, call me, email me. I'd like to join your ladies only class. And I'm always like, I don't teach a ladies only class. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like, I mean, it, I'm an equal opportunity. You know, we have men, we have women. Um, people have, I think, are comfortable coming to me because of the training that I've received and continued to receive of being a good instructor. And um, I'm not saying, woohoo, I'm a good instructor, but I know the level, um, you know, we're required to test every year. We take a shooting test and um, I'm actually getting ready to do it in two weeks. And in order to be an instructor, you have to pass at 90% with the shooting test and a hundred question test. So it's something that has kept me at the top of my game and has made me better and also helped me realize how horrible our gun laws are in California. I think that your average California citizen doesn't realize it. And so I've started getting a lot more involved using my time and resources with Girls With Guns to advocate for fighting for our second amendment because your average person, and I was that person, I'm a hunter, I'm an outdoors woman. Um, I carried my firearm, but I wasn't fighting for my rights. And now that I have a platform that I can do that from, that's what I'm trying to do because we're getting beat up (laughs) as um, gun owners. And I want my daughters to always be able to feel safe. And I will want to always be able to carry to protect them. I'm five foot tall. And, you know, we have, um, you know, we have a violence problem. We have a lot of problems, a mental health problem here in California uh, that we even see all the way up here in the North State. Yeah, and it's fr- it's frustrating. You know, you, you are a gun owner, and it just seems like it's just constantly under attack. And, and a lot of these laws that just, it wouldn't make a difference in some of these scenarios either. And as a hunter, you know, I'm not necessarily a recreational shooter, but I'm a hunter first. It's just Same. super frustrating, and, and it just it's kind of doom and gloom, you know, but you have yeah. to fight. You've got to get involved or a lot of people, once these laws are passed, they come and like, what was going on with that, that bill? We're like, 
Dude, you're just hearing about it. It's been going on for a year, and you just heard about it, and it's passed. It's a done deal. And they're like, "Well, what?" And I was like, "Dude, come on, our girl, guys, get involved here." Yeah, you know? it's, it's lack of knowledge, and and we at CWA tried to do our best to put it out to the general public, but I see it at some of the camps. They're like, "Hey, I tried to go buy ammo, but I don't own a gun. I can't buy ammo for your camp." And it's like just causing more headaches and more issues and more hurdles for everybody to have to jump through that you know are doing it right and that's what we're seeing and especially on the new hunters and they might have not been super pro gun and then they get their hunting license and then they have to go through all the hoops to go get a gun buy the buy the shotgun shells buy the license and then they're like it's eye-opening like wow i didn't realize people who shot had to go through all those hoops just to go out in the field and enjoy firearms or hunting and the cost i mean they just passed another law (laughs) And they're adding, I mean, if I go buy ammo, I mean, I'm, I'm spending quite a bit of money and people don't realize that until they get involved in it, what actually goes into it. And, you know, the, the taxes that we pay on it. And now we just had another law that passed. And I, I feel like, and I've been doing this for 12 years, the solution is not the here and now I do fight here and now. And I do encourage everyone to the solution is our future and that's our children and so for the past 12 years i've gotten involved as a volunteer as a board member as an executive director and now i am um, an independent contractor for them with kids outdoor sports camp and really touching kids throughout northern california um, and outlying areas even down into the bay area where kids come in and they learn that it's okay that guns are okay. And we have to change the narrative for the next generation, because I think that is the ones who are going to be the next voters. They're going to be the ones coming up and understand that hunting and the outdoors is actually really amazing. Being able to feed your family and not um, relying on someone else if you ever had to. I I fill the freezer every year and um, it's like something I, I just, I don't know any different. It's been like that my whole life. And so we have to teach them how important that is. Absolutely. I think one little glimmer of hope, um, one of the fastest rising high high school sports is trap shooting. Yeah. And I don't think that gets enough, you know, light. But you have these schools in, you know, not super red areas that have trap teams. And these kids are getting scholarships and they're going to state. And these are non-hunters, people that had never shot before. You know, traditional sports probably is not their thing, but they're really, really good and safe on the range. And I think mm-hmm. as an NRA, you know, instructor and going through those shotgun classes, it's just awesome to see when you go to like a state event and there's a thousand kids walking around with over and unders and everyone's having a fun time, safe environment. But there's like not one camera there showing how great yeah. all these kids yep. are doing and just how it, it's a fun activity for the whole family, right? But that's one thing that I think is going in the right direction. Well, I mean, hopefully we're doing that with, you know, CWA camps and KOSC. And Jen, if Mm -hmm. you want to touch a little more on what KOSC is and what you do specifically kind of for that organization. Yeah, I would love to. So um, KOSC is Kids Outdoor Sports Camp, and they have been around for 25 years. We're going into our 26th summer. And actually, 
They were originally in conjunction with CWA, our founder, Judy Oswald. Um, she lives here in Red Bluff. She is an amazing woman who I look up to. Yeah. Um, Judy's in her 70s now and um, a dear friend of mine. And really, she is the foundation. She is a hunter ed instructor and has been for um, over 26 years. And she wanted her kids, her grandkids, excuse me, to learn more. So she really just thought this would be something really cool. And um, she was a, I think she was a board member. Yeah, she was. Yeah. Yeah. And so she started working with you guys. And really, it's just an incredible, incredible story um, that started small and is now, um, you know, we have camps where you guys have camps um, mm-hmm. for CWA, KOSC has camps. We all work together, which I think is incredible. Absolutely. And we're really touching kids' lives. So we usually start with our youngest kid being nine. Um, right now, what we do is we start with the beginning camp. So you take them into beginning camp and the kids start with a hunter education, um, basic firearms instruction and safety. And I'm the lead firearms instructor and a um, hunter ed instructor, but mostly, my role is um, in the field. So all of my instruction happens out on the range right now. And mostly that's just because I have two young children and I can't spend six weeks at camps anymore like I used to. Uh, So it's really incredible because the kids are able to actually go through the camps um, for several years. Some of them can repeat. So then we go into advanced camp and Basically, on my side of it, if we're talking firearms, everything starts increasing. So we're going to give them a little bit more information in advanced camp and a little bit more field training. And then we go to advanced two, and then you can go into elite camp, which is actually launching this summer. And once you get past elite camps, you come in and you figure out like what's what do you really want to focus on? And then you take your path and what we are going to call it is tracks. And with those tracks, you can go on a rifle track, an archery track or a shotgun track. And then we will start doing more advanced and the program's growing every year. So we're growing it um, and the curriculum changes. But for the most part, it's just advancing them into more knowledge of hunting. We teach ethics. And the other thing is, fun stuff. So it's not all like we're in the classroom and we're on the range. They are actually um, swimming in the pond. They're fishing. They are enjoying the outdoors uh, for six days without their family, without phone calls, without cell phones. There's zero electronics. And these kids get to be kids. It is amazing to see them interact because currently when you walk into most situations, Kids' heads are down, they're not interacting with anyone, and they're on their cell phones. And they really just get a chance to be kids again and um, just mingle with each other. They actually have to wash their own dishes, so they bring like a little canteen set, and they go through the line, wash their dishes, hang them up on the line. So everybody's responsible for something. And uh, I just think it's a really great program. Uh, This year or last year, we actually brought cabins in. It was the first year I didn't go in 12 years. I had my daughter June 6th, so I did miss it. Um, But this last summer, I was able to come back and we have amazing cabins there at Six Point. And um, we actually spend one to two weeks also at Bird Haven, um, which is hugely waterfowl. And it's incredible there, like absolutely incredible. And w- with that camp, we really focus on uh, that. And 
it's just, there's so much. I mean, I could go on and on, but I know we only have a certain amount of time. Yeah. But I think it's really cool at the KOS or when you guys are at, at six point, the, the arrowhead making activity. I just think it's all yes. like everyone's gathered around a big circle. Everyone's making their arrowheads. It's just really cool with a real obsidian and just doing it the traditional way. It's just, that's something that a kid is never going to forget, you know, of making, never. A, I'm going to, I made an arrowhead out of obsidian, you know, it's awesome. Well, and we also have elk watch. So like we'll take the kids out um, and usually we'll have a herds of elk that come through and you could see a hundred elk sometimes. And it is so incredible uh, that they're able to really see the wildlife and go through and they learn about conservation and they learn how important it is. Yes, we're hunters, but I think we're conservationists first. Yeah. And um, we have a lot of ponds out there. So they're able to see the waterfowl. You guys came in and I don't know who went this year because I missed it because it was on a Monday. Yeah, so uh, Jason, but you guys come in and we. Yeah. Jason Koslovich, one of our waterfowl biologists, he'll yeah. bring um, some of our egg salvage birds up there and, and band them and release them with you guys. Um, I was there last it's year with so them. It's so cool. Make it up this summer, but yeah. Yeah, I did it um, one year with the kids and it was so cool. Yep. Just like when they all released them just to see them go and, you know, know that they were saved. And um, it's just part of conservation. And it's and it's really incredible that you guys do that. Yeah, no, we're happy to be partners up there. And it's just, I mean, our camps really spawned from you guys when you guys first started up in, in Red Bluff with uh, Judy. So, yeah, our programs wouldn't be what they are without you know, her kind of leading the way. Yeah. I think that's pretty awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thankful for you know, <laughs> it happening. So. so you can have a job. Yeah. That's why I'm still here. And now, now, <laughs> now you're in a podcast studio, big change of pace over here. It has, we have <laughs> grown over the years. Sorry. Know? That might be my fault. Yeah. I must say, Jen, as, as a parent, uh, who had a child, um, during the pandemic situation, it really forced the screen time, and encouraged uh, screen time and, and isolation. So it's very refreshing from a parent's perspective to hear uh, how much you know KOSC and what you focus on and what CWA focuses on to get kids out and enjoy you know God's creation and the the beauty and the patience that it takes to really excel uh, in the hunting life and to learn to appreciate where their food comes from. That it's not just in the backseat of a car going through a McDonald's drive-through. Uh, I think yes. that is a great way for us to really help promote our lifestyle and also to help kids get, kind of get back on the track how we all grew up, which was outside with your friends mm -hmm. playing until the sun yeah. went down and not at a screen screaming at each other and not having any understanding of social discourse. Well, and you can see it, um, what screen time does. So, um, I, I'm a normal parent, right? I work from home. And um, when my youngest naps, I um, we usually do with my oldest, she's four and a half now, I will do 30 minutes of her homeschooling. And then I'll say, okay, you've got one hour with your iPad. It changes her whole personality. When I go to take it away from her, she's like, mom, no, and she's the sweetest kid ever. But it's literally like they are, it's almost an addiction. Yeah. And as soon as I I'm like, no, hey, timer went off, we're done. But I'm able to work during that time. And, you know, then we go outside. 
that's what we do because so many kids are not getting outside. They are sitting inside. They're in this. I mean, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with living in the city because, you know, you can go and play outside in the city too, but they're sitting indoors, even in town here in Red Bluff, and they're not getting out. People spend less time outside than any other generation ever has. And so for us, we're outside every day because we have a homestead and we have animals to care for. And, um, but not every kid has that opportunity or gets to stay home. You know, they have to sit in a classroom for eight hours. So I really just think that having KOSC and being able to um, have kids go, we gave away in, let's see, in 2022, we gave away $80,000 in scholarships. And I want to say we gave away 50,000 in scholarships in 2023. So it is something that's incredible. Um, and we just love to, you know, just be able to help the kids. As, as somebody sitting on this side of the table who doesn't have kids compared to everybody else with a microphone, um, I get questioned a lot when I'm running hunts and, and at other times, you know, oh, what age do you think I should bring my kid out to, to the duck blind? And not, not even to hunt, but to, to observe. And I know I'm sure everybody has their, their own opinion and everybody's right in their own opinion, but yeah. what do each of you feel as, you know, a general rule of thumb for the folks listening that may have a, a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, so on, that says, oh, I want to get them out into the duck blind this year. What, what do you guys think about that? It probably depends on the activity, what you're going to do. Let's take a dove hunt, for example. Yeah. Warm weather, not a lot going on. Sit in one place. You could have your son or your daughter right next to you, you know, with earmuffs on, eating snacks, talking, laughing, one thing. But if you're, like, going into it expecting a lot and, like, I'm going to go take them deer hunting but then expect them to be quiet, that's not fun for anyone. But if you're out, like, let's go out and drive around the woods and do some road scouting, bring a lot of snacks, I think that's positive right but like i've met some folks at refuges like they're sleeping in line which is no whatever cool you're sleeping in line but you brought your six-year-old daughter to modoc opening day it's 28 degrees out i don't know that that's not me personally as a dad i mean we were kind of real strict of like okay at like four and a half you get to go dove hunting five dove gets to go out in the duck blind now, now six, it's kind of gets to go more often. But I think that's probably per parent is is different. Because I know people that, you know, they had them in their little jungle baby thing and on their chest and they're out walking the woods, which is awesome, right? But it's everyone teach their own. What yeah. is a jungle baby? What's the little uh, <laughs> I'm a baby no, Bjorn. What's a baby, bo- baby Bjorn? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Bjorn. Yeah. I'm going to go with the jungle baby. I like it. It's yeah, like yeah. a kangaroo. Like All, right. All right. I used to support that. You know, like, I'll take out your dad backpack, got your little kangaroo I was going to say, my, my husband does the backpack. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, and I do, if I could say one thing, it would be, and this isn't a dig on dads because dads are amazing, but if the mom is a hunter, the whole family usually hunts. Absolutely. Because, mm-hmm. different, right, right? So with our family, my husband is an avid archer and he, well, he kicks butt with his shotgun too. And we are both big waterfowl hunters. Since we've had our daughters, we have not been able to, you just kind of said it, like 
at 3 a.m. when I am up with kids all night. It hasn't worked. We haven't been, we, we let our blind go. You know, we haven't been doing as much because of the cold, because of the timing, yeah. uh, because I can't take my kids. And it's actually really sad because my whole family, um, we actually have a nickname. We call ourselves the Duck Mafia. Don't laugh at us. Uh. Um, but like, like that was like our thing growing up. And, um, you know, now, right now in this season of life, um, when I was, uh, Olivia, my oldest was six weeks old. I killed a turkey and um, on the back of our property while she was napping with a monitor and then came back, got her, um, called my mom and said, hey, I got to clean this bird. So can you come help grandma? And at six months old, kind of road hunting, because again, I had a six month old and my dad was with me. And um, we came across a buck at the end of X1 season and he was chasing some does starting to rut and i my dad loves to tell the story he's like she threw olivia at me i really didn't throw her, but i kind of was like here you go dad because you know we we're on this back road going like five miles an hour and i jumped out um threw it on the sticks and and shot this buck because he didn't care that we were there yeah. and so then i took her to wyoming with my nanny and because we were filming and i had a ladies hunt and um, she's been to Hawaii with me on my axis hunt. I actually didn't take her out on the axis hunt, but Chloe was there. I was seven months pregnant. So for me, getting them involved, um, it is hard because I, I do film my hunts, so they need to be successful. <laughs> so I try to take them out other times also yeah. that when I'm not filming, um, but letting them know that this is okay. Um, when we were, uh, we had X1 tags this year and my nephew shot his first deer and Chloe is seven, she was probably 16 months old then. And, you know, I've got her on my hip and, you know, I'm trying to help him. I'm like pulling on the cape and she's over here like poking it. And she's <laughs> like, this is cool. Grabbing the antlers. And it's just getting them involved. Yeah. And I always was worried about them freaking out about it and being like, "Ooh, I don't want to do it because I see this. But um, my husband would bring home his birds and we'd be cleaning them, cleaning them on the tailgate. And Olivia would be sitting there playing with the feathers. So you involve them in every aspect of it, then let them decide for themselves. Because you know what? Maybe they don't want to hunt. I will probably crush my heart. But, you know, what if they don't want to? Um, Olivia told someone the other day that um, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot guns like mommy when I grow up. And that just like made my whole heart happy. So they want her to hunt and I want her to be able to provide for herself and, and love it like I do. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome stuff. But to your, yeah, to your point, it makes it a lot easier if the mother also likes the outdoors because, you know, it, mm -hmm. it is a lot harder for, I think the dads, especially if you're a, you know, your wife is not a hunter and not super into you hunting in general. Cause there's, I have friends like that. Like they're, yeah. their wives, they're just not into hunting and that's really hard for them to one go out themselves, but especially if they want to bring, you know, their kids involved in it. But yeah, I'm kind of have your approach bring them kind of in the fold. We're picking birds and stuff. And, oh, what's that? And my daughter's not super into it. And my son's like, oh, touching the bill and feathers. This one's a mallard. This one's a pintail. And, you know, yeah, so it makes it fun. It right? Yeah. I think it encourages them to, uh, you know, want to learn more about the animal, uh, use a little more creativity to, yeah. you know, to see nature. And, uh, again, I, I go back to how much uh, spoon fed through a screen to them. And I don't think oh. that there is really the connection of pulling the trigger and ending something because in a, in a video game or a TV 
show, it's just not the same. Whereas they get to see that finality, they get to appreciate nature and the process uh, and really learn to respect the lifestyle. To answer your point, Carson, kids a lot of times will be semi-sponges and, and be uh, a product of their environment. So it's important for them mm-hmm. to, to be out. Yeah. It's fishing or camping or golfing. Uh, I remember pheasant hunting as a kid, and you know it was uh, an interesting time with my brother. We would go out and walk through the fields, and I remember killing my first pheasant uh, to this day, and that was many, many years ago. Um, but it was an experience, and it was one that, you know, at the time I was unsure of how I felt. But as you get older and you understand the process and you understand what happens uh, on the other side of where you get your meat from, you know, the grocery store or whatever, you really learn to appreciate the process, I think. Yeah, definitely. It, it can be almost emotional. Um, I mean, I'm a girl, so, you know, but I um, remember just sometimes it's like the hard work that goes into the hunt and I'm always, I'm very um, grateful. I'm grateful. And I always lay my hand on the animal and I just say, thank you for your life. And that's for me, just kind of, it makes me feel better about it because I am an animal lover. And, but I know because I go through the whole process, whether it's picking a bird or caping out an animal, um, hanging the meat, um, processing it. Right now I'm getting ready. I just came back from Texas um, hunting whitetail and I'm in a can all of my whitetail because our freezers are literally stocked full <laughs> with game. And so it's it's just knowing that whole process and, you know, again, letting your kids get involved in some way so they can see it. Yeah, yeah definitely. Now, Jen, as someone who's hunted in Texas and Hawaii and Africa, do you have a hunt that may stick out as the most memorable or memorable place you might have visited during those hunting excursions that you want to talk about? If, you know, every single hunt, I could probably, if you point out, um, I have a lot of mounts and I could tell you a story with every single one. Um, and everyone has a different meaning to me, but if I had to tell you like the most unique, craziest, probably hunt that I've ever been on, um, and a little bit scary was in Western Africa. And, um, I went to the Congo with my best friend, um, business partner and, um, our producer Cappy and his wife and, that was in 2015. And in 2015, we spent 200 days in Africa. Wow. We were in Zimbabwe. Yeah. <laughs> um, 40 of them were in a row. And um, we were back and forth home. I didn't have kids at the time. My husband was super busy starting his business. And it was just, it was, it was pretty incredible. We were able to do all this filming. We were also doing bookings for um, these outfitters and uh, we were blessed. I have been on some incredible hunts and I mean, most people are, you know, Hey, one Africa trip's pretty incredible. I was able to go that many times and I can't tell you how thankful I am for that opportunity. Um, but when we went to the Congo, um, we were able to, uh, pursue a bongo, which is one of the most sought after antelope in the world. It is beautiful. And um, it was the experience that went along with it. And the only reason it comes to my mind is because uh, somebody was asking me the story about it the other day, and I shared it a little bit with them. Because it's really hard to answer that because I've done some incredible hunts. Um, 
But with that, going through the motions of being in a country, um, oh gosh, what was it that they had? It was during the, it was, well, it was way pre-COVID. What did they have over there? It was some sickness and we had to wear a mask. Um, I can't remember what it was right now, but it, they were worried about it coming into the Ebola? U.S. Ebola? Ebola. Yes. Ebola. Yeah. Ebola. I'll take yes. one for me. Yeah, <laughs> one for me. Trivia has already started. <laughs> so it was during the Ebola outbreak. Um, and I, we had already had everything. We were already like over there. And so when you do this, you go and you fly into that country. And once you get into that country, um, you're kind of at their mercy, I'm going to be honest. So we had our flights, we get there, none of us speak the language, they speak, my producer, um, he spoke Afrikaans, English. Um, and anyways, he spoke three languages, I think Dutch was the other one, but they speak French over there. And so none of us spoke French. And so we get over there, and we have a translator that we've hired, but you know, it was a little sketchy, if I'm being honest. And we fly in at night. The government has grounded all of our flights. And they said, sorry, we're keeping your money and you don't get to fly to your area. So we had to find locals um, that didn't speak the language. And we got in the vehicles. And I really wish we did behind the scenes, like social media and stuff like that. But we didn't even, our phones didn't even work over there. Um, it wasn't as big in 2015 like it is now. I'd have been like vlogging all of it. Um, <laughs> but we literally jumped in these vehicles in the middle of the night. They're working on them. We have no clue what they're saying. And we're like, oh my gosh. And we drive 24 hours through the Congo and a rainforest and this road is just a bulldozer that had just bulldozed a path <laughs> so it's muddy and mucky and we're doing this and me and my producer both get super car sick so i took like a dramamine and passed out and i can sleep anywhere and i woke up later and everybody's like freaking out the guy's patting himself on the head trying to keep himself awake and we've got three <laughs> vehicles going with all of our stuff packed and we pull over at one point and i remember my producer saying get back get back in the car um, where it's the middle of the night and they have like 40 um, ounce beer bottles full of gasoline and they're filling our vehicles with them <laughs> on the side of the road. And I think, gosh, that's like an experience that no one <laughs> is going to believe. We, we don't have any, we have some footage, but it was dark. And then we went through one of the vehicles broke down in the middle of the jungle. My producer got it going. I mean, it was crazy. Like, I was thinking, are we really going to get out of here? But I was in my 30s. I didn't have kids. I was pretty, uh, felt invincible at the time and didn't think now looking back, like how many times we were stopped at gunpoint, you know, they had um, rifles on their chests and they're just like looking at us, trying to talk to us. And I'm like, I don't speak it. I'm sorry. So we got held at gun. I'm not, not at gunpoint, but yeah. like held a few times. No clue what's going on. The translator's talking. He's like, yeah, we're fine. I'm like, we are, it's been like an hour. And so they would finally let us through and um, got there. It was an incredible hunt. Um, just the rainforest, the humidity was like 90%. So that was kind of gross. Um, but we both shot bongos, which is pretty unusual in one week. And the camp kept saying like, we need you to shoot these because we need meat um, for the camp. And so we were able to shoot, um, Narissa shot her bongo and then I shot mine. And I remember this moment, 
um, that we were there and um, they had this tribe. It was like a pygmy tribe and um, I'm five foot. So it was really cool. These guys were shorter than me and they came through and they were like hacking our path on this um, beautiful trail and they were just getting so we could get through because it would grow over so fast. And they jumped in the vehicle with us and they started singing this like cool, I mean, I have no idea what they were saying, but finally I looked at Narissa and I said, they're saying Yahweh and they're saying God. And it was just a really emotional moment because I'm a Christian and I just felt like this cool, overpowering, like nobody's ever going to believe this. <laughs> and we have footage of it, but it was just an incredible moment to be in, uh, to be in another world. And I can tell you the one thing that it did, it made me appreciate Red Bluff. So, um, <laughs> Not many things can make you say that. Paved roads. I know, I, but it really did like the United States and the freedoms that we have, because they did the same thing to us on the way out, you know, we had to drive out 24 hours. We were not able to take our flights. We had to wait. We had this whole Ebola virus. You know, they got we've got video of them. They wouldn't let us video. We've got pictures um, where they were checking our temperature and we're in masks. And um, we had to fly through Paris and stay in Paris for, I don't know why Paris wasn't stopping it, but um, for five days before we could go home to the U.S. because they wouldn't let us come direct flight from there. So then we went and stuffed ourselves in Paris and then came back. So it was kind of one of those incredible trips. Um, Now, favorite hunt is hunting with my dad. Just so you know, I'm the simple, like, I want to go to X1 in Northern California and spend a week with my dad. I just did that this year. But if you want to talk really cool stories, that's probably the coolest story I have. So, so once you're there, are you in a village or are you in a like a nice camp? What's the sleeping and living conditions, you know, once you reach your destination? There in the car. What's your definition of nice? <laughs> well, I don't know. Tent, maybe. <laughs> so there's, prison. Yeah. I think so. So um, it was really hot. It was really muggy and gross there. Um, we had no electricity. Um, we didn't have running water. One of the coolest things that I liked was um, they would go out and they would hack off this whole thing of bananas. Like it would be like this big and you would just walk every morning and you'd get these little mini bananas. Mm. Um, I saw gorillas like a silverback gorilla. It was the coolest um, experience. He was about um, probably 75 yards from us. But, um, and then we went like on this canoe. I actually celebrated my birthday there. So they threw me a birthday party and um, it just, uh, the conditions were like, we had like a little bonfire and they had like a, a building with a kind of a makeshift kitchen, but I mean, it wasn't nice. They did have a bar though. They definitely oh, had, you, you know, because people come and hunt, right? All hunting camps have that. Yeah. So they had like a little area with like, you know, some very basic alcohol. And then they had a room with a table that you would eat in. And then they had their small kitchen, but they didn't have the ways that they kept stuff cold was different. And a lot of the meat was salted. Mm. Um, and then they'd run the generator. And um, then right down below was like all the camps of the local villagers. And um, we brought in some gifts and stuff for them. And it was it was really neat to see. Um, like one, one camp we went through, um, now there's chickens running through and they had little mud huts made with straw and mud and these little houses. And it, it was just a really neat experience to see. Well, Africa's on my bucket list. I'll, I'll get there some. Maybe not the Congo. I don't think I would go to the Congo. I I got, we got offered to go back again. And my husband said, absolutely not. (laughs) Been there, done that. Yeah. One one time kind of thing. Yeah, Yeah, it is. So in, in your opinion, you know, 
our hunting rights, our second amendment rights are, you know, kind of being attacked from all angles. What do you think the future of hunting looks like in California specifically? Are we, are we doom and gloom or are we, you know, steady on the boat and we're just going to keep chugging along? You know, to be honest. And I want the honest answer. If people do, if everyday people don't start taking responsibility and I'm that person, um, we're going to be doom and gloom. And what I mean by that is join the organizations like CWA, like CRPA um, that are coming in and fighting for our rights and getting involved, even at a local level, getting involved on a board, board of supervisors, like making a difference and giving some of your time um, and fighting back or helping campaigns of people who believe in our gun and our hunting rights, because I just really, or helping the next generation, like the CWA kids camps or KOSC. If we don't fight back, it, it could get worse, which is hard to believe, but um, I am hoping and praying that people will wake up and really see it. I did. Um, I was that person that was like, well, I can't make a difference. And, um, you know, that was many years ago. And, you know, God granted me this amazing platform for the outdoors where I have the ear of men and women um, who follow us. And so now I am speaking out and talking about the things that are coming down the pipeline and hoping that people will listen, that they will um, get more involved. And I mean, like I said, it can even be at a local level, but we have to start making a difference and make a stand as a community because there are more of us than people put together. I get that there's some areas that are heavily anti-gun, but there is a lot of us here in California and we have the most beautiful, the most wonderful state. Um, you know, I literally feel like judged when I go, when I travel and I say I'm from California, they're like, <laughs> and you like guns. I'm like, yeah, I own a gun business. Like I'm a, I'm a firearms trainer also. And, you know, an avid hunter. And they look at me like, really? So, but people don't understand that, um, you know, here in NorCal and definitely central and SoCal, there's a ton of different areas. We have great hunting. We have um, so much to offer. And I just think and pray, I hope and pray that um, people will start getting involved. Yeah. I think education at the end of the day is really where the, the conversation should be starting. You know, I, I think what you see on TV and you see in the media paints one picture, but, you know, you spend a couple of hours with you guys doing some of your instruction uh, or others that are in our industry, and you learn so much more about what it's like to be a responsible firearm owner and why it's important, and also how many avenues that, I mean, you know, people aren't necessarily, the shotguns we use in hunting it's not something where you know you're going to go and, and shoot up schools with it so it's uh it's it's unfortunate to be lumped in there but i think at the end of the day being informed and being educated will help people understand that everything is not a machine gun like they see on tv mm -hmm. uh that 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 that's not going to shape the whole world and that you know you can drive a car lots of things happen with those and and i just i think that at the end of the day uh, starting from point one informing the public, educating them, letting them see how much more is involved in the hunting world uh, really kind of gets the ball rolling in, in, in that part of it. And I think it will help protect mm -hmm. what we all hold so dear in California. Yeah, no, absolutely. Definitely. Well, Jen, we appreciate you coming on here and sharing your, your knowledge as well as your stories and your business. And 
and hopefully we'll we'll see you around here soon. I would love that. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for all that you guys do for our state. Yeah, thank you very much for those that want to hear uh, or learn more about Jen and her business. It is Girls with Guns. I highly encourage you to go and check it out and see their wonderful apparel line and learn so much about what Jen is doing to help uh, protect so many rights that we have in California. We hope to have. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Save It for the Blind podcast. You can find our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.